uh, John 15, 18 through 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I have said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that they have no excuse for their sin, whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they have seen and hated both me and my father, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you, will, you also will bear witness because you have been with, with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Yes and amen. Well, good morning, Westside. We are glad that you're here as we are continuing in our series. Um, before we get going this morning, I do just have a few um, particular announcements I want to get you involved in. Um, we celebrate Advent here at Westside. Maybe you didn't grow up in church, you don't know what any of that is. What Advent is, is uh, it's the season in church history that prepares you for Christmas. So it is the time that prepares our hearts and minds that leads us up to Christmas. And each year we um, provide a devotional or some sort of material for you that you could read with your whole family that prepares your heart and mind for the day of Christmas. So much has become the hustle and bustle of will Amazon get here in time? Oh no, all of this stuff. But next week, we'll, we will have an Advent devotional available for you. So it starts on December 1st. So we're getting this to you in plenty of time. It's $10. Uh, we're actually losing money on the book, but we want you to be able to have this. It'll be for sale out there in the lobby. And what you'll do is each day, it gives you some scripture, some devotions, and a couple application questions that you or your family can center on and really build up some anticipation in regards to that. Also, um, Christmas Day this year falls on a Sunday. So I've had some questions. Are we, are we going to have service on Sunday? And those people must be new. Um, no, but, but in all seriousness, just a little bit of history for you. Um, at the etymology, the study of the word Christmas, Christ Mass, it is literally the word Christmas means the gathering and mass for Christ. That's what the word means. So yes, we will be having service on Christmas Day 
at 10 a.m. Nikki's doing something cool at the Kids Side Kids. You can come in your pajamas. It'll be a full-fledged Sunday. We want you to come out and be a part of that. Also, our Christmas Eve service will be at 5 a.m. here at the chapel. So we want you guys um, to have all of that information uh, ahead of time so you guys can be prepared for that. And listen, these are incredible times incredible times to invite that family member or that friend. Statistically, somebody who's a non-Christian or who doesn't attend church is like 80% likely to say yes if they're invited to one of these services. So I want you um, as a church member to really be mindful of that and have a mission mind in, in, uh, in, in light of everything that's coming up. Lastly, this. Um, last week, the church met um, as a membership, and um, we've got some exciting things coming up. For two years, the church has been in pursuit of another staff member, a full-time position, um, an executive pastor that would function as someone who executes, executive, executes the things that need to be done here at the church, organize the team ministry leaders and all of those things and uh, actually we've approved that salary for two years in our budget to prepare for this to ease into this and um, I am happy to announce that last week we as a congregation voted on Alex Clark to be our executive pastor and so this is a big deal for us we are super excited. That's Alex, his wife, Megan, and Judah. And actually, um, Alex sent in a video, so take a look at this. What is up, Westside? This is Alex, Megan, and Judah. We are so excited for the future that we have at Westside. And so here we got Judah decked out in his Westside t-shirt. We're so excited what God has for 2023. I hope you guys are too. We are excited. Are we excited? Yeah, so we're excited about that. You guys are going to be hearing a lot more about that. Alex is going to be coming down as he can. Um, obviously, moving in this time of year with family and schedules and all of that. So we're really looking at January for him to come in and set a rhythm. A lot of exciting stuff is going down. But hey, we're in our series entitled The Upper Room. Um, and if it's your first Sunday here, you can go to our website and check it out. But basically what we're doing is um, in John 13 to John 17, these are Jesus' last words to his disciples. Um, he's getting ready to go to the cross, die, and resurrect, and he is leaving his ministry with these 12 men in this room. And really, as you study um, these chapters, it is the quintessential, the core to what it is to be a Christian. Jesus is reviewing, he's laying stuff down, and he is saying, this is what it is going to be like for you to be my disciples as I leave. And what we've done is we're asking this question. What are the marks of an upper room disciple? What does it look like to be someone who follows Jesus? Those 12 literally were entrusted with the message of Christianity. And because those 12 disciples were faithful, we are literally here today. So if you see behind me, each week we've been pulling out a principle. And, and the reason why those are up there is for you to ask the question, do I see those marks in my life? 
These are very measurable things for us to look at and to say, do I see these elements in my life? And which of these elements or marks is God calling me up to? And it's increasing in our relationship with Jesus. And this week um, is really, really positive, as you can see. The mark is to be hated by the enemy. And if you heard the passage that was read to you, the word hate is used a bunch of times. Like, what is going on in this passage? It's like Jesus is preparing his disciples. Hey, listen, I'm leaving, and it hasn't gone well for me, and I'm actually getting ready to go get beaten beyond human recognition and crucified. And by the way, it's going to be a little bit difficult for you um, as well. But to set up where we're going, um, I want to tell you about a hero of mine. When you look back upon church history, there's a bunch of people who sort of stand out. And one of them is John Wesley. John Wesley is the founder of what we know of today as the Methodist movement. John Wesley um, was one of the first men to preach outside the walls of the Church of England. Back then, it was literally illegal to preach outside of the church walls. So the church expected everyone to come to them. But the church was filled with corruption at that time. So John Wesley stepped outside the walls of the church and preached, he would travel around from town to town on horseback, and he would preach, and hundreds and even thousands of people in that town would come to know Christ. And then as he would leave that town, method men, as they were um, uh, titled, um, literally his followers would come in behind him and they would help structure and plant a church. Hence the name Methodist, that there is a method to the way that we start these churches and do this. Some of you guys grew up Methodist, you didn't even know that was a thing, right? But John Wesley is a main hero of mine because he literally gave his life to the gospel. And he did not live an easy life. He traveled tens of thousands of miles in horrible conditions on horseback. He would go into a town. He would not be well received. He was beaten oftentimes. One time he was even poisoned. He stayed at someone's home and they opposed him and his message so much that they poisoned him with food and he almost died. But one biographer tells of a little glimpse into John's life. And, and I'm just going to read straight from it. And it says this, John Wesley was riding along a road one day when it dawned on him that three whole days had passed in which he had suffered no persecution at all. Not a brick or an egg had been thrown at him for three whole days. Alarmed, he stopped, got off his horse, and exclaimed, Can it be that I have sinned or have backslidden? Slipping from the horse, Wesley bent down on his knees and began interceding with God to show him where, if any, there had been fault or secret sin in his life. Wesley was close to the town, and outside the town, a rough fellow on the other side of the hedge, hearing the prayer, looked across and recognized the preacher. 
I'll fix that Methodist preacher, he said. And picking up a brick, he threw it over at Wesley. It missed him and fell harmlessly beside him. At that time, Wesley leaped to his feet joyfully and said, Thank God, all is right. I still have his presence. (laughs) Isn't that great? That's great. He went three whole days preaching and no one threw a brick at his head or threatened his life or threw tomatoes or eggs at him. And listen, that was so normal for his life that three days passed and he was in fear that he had distorted the gospel message had become a tickler of ears, or had fallen into grievous sin. Think about this. John Wesley was so used to the opposition of the message of the gospel in his life that when it didn't happen, he was troubled. And for us today... I think we live such comfortable lives that when it happens, we are troubled. You see, one of the things that Scripture teaches when you just read the New Testament is the New Testament is brutally honest about what a life looks like that loves and follows Jesus in this world. There is scripture after scripture that says, prepare yourself and don't lose heart. Um, Here's some of them. Here's here's my favorite one, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, I, I joke around all the time and say that I have never seen this at Hobby Lobby. Never seen it on a big sign. Come into our living room. All who desire, right? All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And then Jesus goes on to say this in Matthew. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, goes on to say to the church that he planted Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here it is. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Never heard Joel Osteen say that one time. (laughs) If you are persecuted and insulted and hated because of Jesus, it is confirmation in your life that you are blessed because the spirit of glory 
and of God rests upon you. I mean, do we understand how far removed we are from something like this? Like, like we think that, that a sign of the Spirit is, is either miraculous gifts or, or I got what I prayed for or this, that, and the other. But the Scripture time and time again says one of the greatest confirmations of your relationship with Christ is opposition, is opposition. And then one verse that's become near and dear to me when Jesus in Luke 6 says this, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did to the false prophets. Like, when I first became a pastor, I held this scripture very close because there is a problem fundamentally that if we, week after week after week after week, we are preaching and proclaiming the very same message that Jesus did, and we all just little smiles. Such a good sermon, Pastor. It was such a good sermon. Oh, my goodness, today, mm, it was such a good sermon, right? Jesus literally says, listen, of our life, woe to you. That's one of the most severest things that Jesus has said in all of the scriptures. Woe to you when people constantly, all the time, just speak well of you. Because that's what they do to false teachers who preach a false message. Now, I know that when I talk about persecution and harm and suffering... There's a ditch on either side of the road, okay? So, so on one side of the road, it's what I like to call a martyr's complex. Like some of us are like, man, I can't wait for persecution, baby. Bring it on. I'm going to die preaching, and I've got a death wish. And, and it's like, oh, my goodness. Like, you need to slow down on the caffeine, okay? Like, man. And then there's the other side of that that's like, oh, I've been so persecuted today. I posted a Bible verse and only two people liked it. The sufferings of Christ, you know. It's like, well, I don't think that's... So, so I think sometimes we, we overplay it, we underplay it, but then I think there's some of us who like really in our jobs and in our family are really experiencing an opposition, but then we, we say, well, there's people in Africa and in North Korea who were really, really suffering persecution. Listen, um, there was a study done by Barna that, that sort of mapped out basically kind of 17 key things that they see of all of the opposition when it comes to Christianity. And I think these are very helpful because some of us downplay what we're going through and some of us overplay our experience. Um, of the 17, like they, they go from least to greatest. So disapproval, ridicule, pressure to conform, loss of an educational opportunity, economic sanctions, relational shunning, alienation from community, loss of employment. Like these first eight, please don't be so naive. Those are happening now, right now here in the United States of America. And then loss of property, 
physical abuse, mob violence, harassment by officials, government authority, kidnapping, forced labor, imprisonment, physical torture, and then murder or execution. I think this is helpful to look at because we understand severity, but we also at the same time have to understand maybe there really is some real opposition that we're experiencing in our lives. And so listen, the big idea today and the mark of an upper room disciple is very simply this. It's right there in the text. An upper room disciples are hated by the enemy. And now when I say that, you should probably have some questions because what do we mean by enemy here, okay? And so listen, if, if you're a non-Christian or, or, or if it's your first time sort of back in church and you're like, great, I came on the Satan day or something like that, okay? I understand this, this sounds kind of crazy, but, but here's one thing that, that I always try to kind of say to someone who's maybe peeking over the fence of Christianity. We can all agree on this. Number one, the world is broken, yes? There are horrible things that happen in this world. And so if you think that it's, you know, 2022, we're all beyond that, and this, that, and the other, what is your answer to the suffering in the world? Because, you see, oftentimes we hide behind just um, disagreeing or shooting an answer down that we don't necessarily like. But, but in, in a real rhetoric and, and in an argument, you can't just shoot something down. You also have to propose something. So, so if you say there's no real enemy, there's no this, that, or the other, what do you propose as the reason why the world is so broken? Because the Christian worldview says that this is not the way that it was supposed to be. That God created everything good and perfect. But that there was a rebellion that happened against God and his creation. And, and when the Bible speaks of the enemy or enemies, really, that the Christian has in their life, there's three main ones. These are important for you to know. They're all through 1 John. They're all through the scriptures. The first one is your flesh. Your flesh. You're like, my skin and bones? Well, listen, when the Bible uses the word flesh, what it means is this. That part of you that has not yet fully submitted to Jesus Christ. Those cravings, that attitude, that mindset. This is my area of my life. And Jesus, I need you here, but, but my dating life, my sex life, my money, all of that, that's, that's mine. That's the flesh. And um, congratulations, you get to fight that every day of your life, right? Every day of your life. That's why the Apostle Paul would say things like, for I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So it's our flesh, but the second thing is Satan and demons. There is real opposition. For everything that is in the kingdom of God, what God creates, Satan counterfeits. 
So our, our fight is not just against flesh and blood, as the Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians 6, but against principalities, rulers, and spiritual authorities. There is a realm that we do not see with our eyes that is in opposition against you. And if you don't think so, then you and your family just decide to read the Bible every day and to pray every day and to begin to get involved in this and to rearrange arrange some things in your life and watch all hell break loose. I'll never forget when I baptized a guy one Sunday and the next Sunday I saw him come in and I said, hey bud, how are you? And he said, awful. My life has gotten worse since I've been baptized. And I was like, congratulations, bro. You're totally saved, man. All right. Because there is real opposition out there. But it's not the flesh and it's not necessarily Satan and demons that Jesus is speaking about in John 15. There's a word. There's a word that Jesus used five times in the passage. It's the world. The world. Well, that's about as clear as mud. Okay, what does that mean? Because I thought God loved the world. Remember Tim Tebow did that thing, for God so loved the world that he gave his, right? I had a kid in youth group one time say, you know that verse that Tim Tebow wrote? I was like, oh my gosh, Lord Jesus, we need you now, right? For God so loved the world. Well, it's actually the same word, cosmos. So what does that mean? In 1 John, John takes this writings of Jesus and he talks a lot about the world. He's even so bold to say that, that if you love the world, then you hate God. What is the world? Well, I love what one theologian, D.A. Carson, said. He said this, The world is the created moral order in active rebellion against God. It's the system of the world. It's what the world values. Power, money, all of these things. What the world values is in exact opposition against everything in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God values humility. The world is all about pride and looking out for yourself. Um, the kingdom of God is about self-sacrifice and love. And, and by all appearances, it looks like you might be losing. And the world values winning by any means necessary and sacrificing other people to do that. Hey, um, can we just be honest in here right now? Um, all surveys say that 80% 80% of all religious persecution that's happening in the world today is happening to Christians. It is so lopsided in this thing. Have you ever thought, um, remember the Simpsons? You remember the Simpsons? Um, why is Homer's neighbor, Ned Flanders, uh, a Christian? How about this? Why is he not a Muslim? Why is it on SNL, the, the old church lady, a, a Christian woman? Why is it not a Buddhist? How come, how come when someone pulls out in front of someone or, or you slam your, your thumb with a hammer, you take the Lord's name in vain? How come it's not like, Muhammad, oh my good, right? Okay, why? 
Have you ever thought about this? Because the world hates Jesus. And there is real opposition in your life. And this is something that Jesus is saying in these verses, that that you need to know this, that you need to be prepared for this, that, listen, if they're getting ready to crucify me, bro, it's not going to go well for you either. And John says later on in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You don't think so? Why don't you post Romans chapter 1 on your social media? And don't call me. The whole world lies in this illusion of the evil one. And Jesus came to seek and save those who were under the power of sin, death, and hell. Um, what does this have to do with the discipleship, though? Right, Because what we said is the upper room discourse is like Jesus' inaugural address. Hey, if you're going to be my disciple, this is what it's like. John 13 through John 17. Here are the marks. You can measure this with your life. What does needing to know about the world and what it values, why is that important for discipleship? I love uh, the way that Dr. Tony Evans put it. Dr. Tony Evans is a preacher in Oak Cliff, Texas. He has a radio program. You may have heard it. He's a great guy. Read anything by him. Listen, Dr. Tony Evans is a phenomenal preacher. But in 2002, he was teaching his congregation on discipleship in this very passage. And here's how he explained it. Jesus' teaching in the upper room is about discipleship. Well, what's discipleship? Discipleship has to do with bringing every area of life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's a good definition. You need to write that down. That is it. That discipleship has to do with bringing every area of our life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If Jesus rose from the grave and beat sin, death, and hell and is the king of the universe, the only response is to bow the knee. The only response is to bow the knee. Hey, listen, you don't negotiate with the king. You don't negotiate with kings. And how many of us come to Christ and go, salvation, yes, please. Peace, joy, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, yes, please. That's great. Obedience, radical sacrifice, generosity. Hey, 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 forgiving those that hurt you? I would like to opt out of that, please. I would like to take the first three, and I would like to opt out of the rest. That is not Christianity. And, and if I could just be honest with some of you in the room today, that's how you're trying to operate, and you are exhausted. You're exhausted because that's not the way it was designed. I love the way that Adrian Rogers said it, that he is either Lord of it all or not Lord at all. And that doesn't mean perfection. 
What it does mean is daily, as Jesus says, if anyone should follow me, that they should take up their cross daily, deny themselves and follow me, that it is a daily surrender of when we wake up and there's a whole new day in front of us and we surrender our checking account, our Google calendar, all of that, and we say, it's not mine, it's yours. And let me use these things in such a way that give you glory. That's discipleship. And so he goes on to say, that's discipleship. To put it another way, God wants to own more of you this year than he had last year. That's good, man. That's a good line. God wants to progressively control. Oh, here it is. Here it is. God wants to progressively control the agenda of your life. And that's the problem we have. That's where the hate comes from. Because sin, as Augustine would say, at its very core, is saying, not thy will be done, but my will be done. This is how I'll date. This is how I'll spend. This is what I will do. And what Tony Evans is saying, the reason why this is difficult, but there is an enemy that seeks to stifle your development as a disciple. Here it is. He wants to interrupt it. So how does the enemy interrupt it? By making you comfortable here. Cozy in. Work for that retirement. Work for that because this is all, it's, it's my life and this is my plan. And I'm trying to make my life as comfortable as possible here and now. And now the bill of goods that's sold to the modern church is that Jesus is literally an accessory to your life. That you can have this, you can have this, you can have this, and Jesus. But the reality is, is when you say yes to one thing, you say no to a thousand other things. So can I let you in on something? I wrestled with this text all week long. I was conflicted. And here is what I was conflicted at. I could teach the passage I mean, we're doing that now. What's the meaning of the passage? I had, I had some points. They were super good. It was the haters and the helper. Like, that's fire. That's really good, right? The haters, why do they hate us? Because they hated Jesus first, because they don't know God, and because of the light of, the, of, of who Jesus is. It's all right there in the verse. And then what are we supposed to do? Well, you have a helper, the Holy Spirit. And what are we supposed to do? Jesus says, will you still give testament? Like, like I could teach the text, but... Here was the question as I thought about us and you and our congregation in the here and now. Do we as a church really experience the type of opposition that Jesus is even talking about? Like, do we even feel this? The hatred the preparation, prepare yourself. And I'm not talking about the Fox News or CNN rant that you watched and made you all afraid. No, no, no. I'm talking, here's the question, and here's really what I felt like the Lord gave me. 
And this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Before we can ever teach this passage and understand the ethos of it and how Jesus is preparing his disciples for a persecution that you and I would weep at to see what happened. The question is this. Does my love and obedience to Jesus cost me anything? Like, think about it. Does my love and obedience to Jesus really cost me anything in my life? I mean, think about your day-to-day, your week, all of those things. Does my love and obedience to Jesus cost me anything? Because what Jesus is preparing his disciples for is for them to lay down their lives for his sake. And I'm grateful for the nation that we live in, and I'm grateful for the freedoms that we have, but at the same time, it's a double-edged sword. And I believe that we have become so comfortable and so cozy within the world that when we read passages like this, it doesn't even seep into our bones to understand what Jesus is speaking of. Do you know who he's talking to in the room? The 12 apostles. We've established that that these 12 upper room disciples take the message and literally go to the ends of the earth. Did you know that also through church history, we know what happens to every single one of them. All of them die a martyr's death but John. And John was boiled in a vat of oil and didn't die, so they banished him to an island. Peter is beaten and crucified upside down. He was going to be crucified in a regular way, right side up, but he said that he was not worthy to die like Jesus did and requested to be crucified upside down. Andrew is tied to a cross and left outside for animals to eat him alive. History records that he preached the gospel until he lost his voice. James died in 44 AD after he was beheaded by King Herod, who had launched a new persecution of Christians. James was the first martyr from among the 12 apostles. Philip was beaten to death and hung at the city square. Bartholomew ministered in Armenia and was flayed to death like a fish with knives in India. Thomas died near Madras, India in 70 AD. And he was ran through with multiple spears. James the Lesser, tradition says was crucified in lower Egypt and then sawed in pieces and the pieces were mailed to the various churches. And we're so cozy. Listen, I'm burdened today. I'm so burdened that when I look 
at the modern church today and I see the history of what we come from, what will be said of us? I'm not saying a martyr's complex. I'm not saying that you have to be sawed in pieces. I'm not saying those things. What I am saying is this. Does your love and obedience to Jesus cost you anything? Because there's no way it could cost them their lives and cost us nothing. It might be relationships. It might be a job. It might, I, I just traveled um, with a group of men and, and we were walking through the airport and one of the guys had a paper boarding pass. And I was like, what are you, 1990? What are you doing with a paper boarding pass? And he said, um, my phone shuts off at 7 p.m. I said, why? He said, it's just to help me with technology and accountability. Pretty much after 8 p.m. when I'm on my phone, I end up looking at dumb stuff. And I thought, yes. My power is made perfect in weakness. Where are the men who say, I'm weak? I can't handle that. That's where the power of God comes. He meets you there. What does it look like? What does it cost us? Because Jesus said it would cost us everything. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. To turn father and mother against son and daughter, to turn brother against a brother, it will cost us something. So listen, here are the two questions that I have for you today in light of the text that was read. If upper room disciples are hated by the enemy, the value system of the world. Radical obedience is motivated by radical love. Listen, we don't leave here today going, we're angry at the world. We're going to burn all this stuff. Or we're gonna... No. Do you know what early Christians did? Um, when the plague swept through Rome and babies were left out in the gutter to die, it was Christians who came along and picked them up. When you drive around hospitals next time in a city, look at what they're named. This is in our blood. Christians didn't run away, they stayed. It's not motivated by hate, it's motivated by love. And that love costs them their lives. Do you know what my greatest fear is for you? My greatest fear is that you would die having just lived out the American dream. The retirement, the this, the that and never gave your life to a real radical obedience that cost you something. This life isn't what matters. It's eternity that is to come. So what radical step of obedience is Jesus leading you to take? I mean, when we read that text and then we look at our lives, there is such a stark difference that it's startling. What's Jesus calling you to? And it can be as simple as this. Some of you have never even talked to your dad. But we're over here praying, God, show me your will. God, give me your power. God, lead me here. God, and there's this right here. What if? in the moment and in the place of so much fear and so much angst, and I don't know what's going to happen, what if there the Spirit of the living God rushed in? 
Faith is not stepping out and knowing what's next. Faith is stepping out and knowing that God knows what's next. So what is that for you today? It might be a conversation with a boyfriend or a girlfriend like, hey, this is what our relationship has looked like and I really think it needs, it's gonna cost something. But the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus is worth it. God, he's worth it. When you're on the hospital bed, Jesus is worth it. When there's no money in the account, Jesus is worth it. When the kid hasn't come home yet and you don't know what to do, Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. So what's he calling you to? Father God, we come before you today, and if we are honest, we confess that our lives are so far removed from what you've said in this text today. And God, it's not a guilt, it's not a shame, because it's motivated, a radical obedience is motivated by real love. So my prayer is that we would simply fall in love with you more, Jesus, and find you more precious, more valuable than vacations and comfort and excessive this and excessive that. God, may we be a radical people because the way in which we will have to live will have to be separate and distinct from the world. So God, today I pray for something radical for Westside. God, I pray that you would make us uncomfortable and not settled, and not cozy, and not just, this is my life, but rather to open up the doors of our heart and say, you are Lord of all. What's next? That's where I want to be. We know that we will be hated by the world only because we love you. May that love lead us to something radical. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.